Good morning, church. My name is Philip. This is my wife, Ioana. And um, for the past few months, 12 weeks or so, we had the privilege of being with you uh, as I took part in the internship program. I'm one of the interns as well. And today uh, we are just very thankful that as our time came to an end, comes to an end, excuse me, we are getting ready to go back home and continue our ministry there. So if you would, um, let's join in in prayer at this time. Father, we come before you today in reverence to thank you for everything that you are and everything that you've done in our lives. We are humbled by your goodness and grace, and we thank you for your perfect love that was shown to us through your son, Jesus. Father, we lift up this morning the people who are hurting, who are going through hardship, the ones who are suffering and mourning. Father, I pray that you would encourage them today. I pray that you would be their rock and their support. I pray that you would give them peace and that they would know they are cared for and loved by you. And I also pray for us, for us as their brothers and sisters, that we would know how to love and care for them. Father, I pray for the churches here in the United States as well as in Romania. I pray that you would lift up a generation that will worship you boldly, that would not be ashamed of their faith. I pray for healthy churches, and I, I pray that through your spirit, you would call more and more people to you. This morning, Lord, I pray for soft hearts that would receive your message. Lord, I, I know you have something you want, to, you want us to know this morning, so I pray that we would be receptive to what you have prepared. I also pray for Austin. I pray that you would empower him by your Holy Spirit, that he would be bold and full of wisdom in delivering your message to us. We are so thankful that you are here with us, that you listen to us, and that you love us so very much. And all of this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, Austin and Jim had an idea that it would be nice to do things a little bit differently. So this morning, we're going to read the text twice, once in our language, in Romanian. My wife's going to do that, and then we're going to do it in English. And just before I start, I just want to, I wanted to say something. I asked Austin if, if that was okay. A professor of mine a few years ago said that Zacchaeus, which is the a character in the passage we're going to read today, should be my favorite character in the Bible, because a short person is always happy when he meets someone even shorter. <laughs> Not sure about that, but if you are able to, I would ask you to rise for the text. Isus a intrat în Erihon și trecea prin cetate. Și un om bogat numit Zacheu, mai marele vameșilor, căuta să vadă care este Isus, dar nu putea din pricina norodului, căci era mic de statură. A alergat înainte și s-a suit într-un dud ca să-l vadă, pentru că pe drumul acela avea să treacă. Isus, când a ajuns în locul acela, și-a ridicat ochii în sus și a zis, Zacheu, dă-te jos de grabă, căci astăzi trebuie să rămân în casa ta." Zacheu s-a dat jos în grabă și l-a primit cu bucurie. Când au văzut lucrul acesta, toți cârteau și ziceau, A intrat să găzduiască la un om păcătos." Dar Zacheu a stat înaintea Domnului și a zis, Iată, Doamne, jumătate din avuția mea o dau săracilor și dacă am năpăstuit pe cineva cu ceva, îi dau înapoi împătrit. Iisus i-a zis, Astăzi a intrat mântuirea în casa aceasta, căci și el este fiul lui Avram. 
pentru că Fiul omului a venit să caute și să mântuiască ce era pierdut. And now for the English version, I'll be reading from the ESV, not as well as my wife did, but I'll try to do it justice. So Luke 19, 1-10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a, name, a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and, and he was seeking to see who's, who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of men came to seek and save the lost. Amen. Thank you, Philip and Joanna. It's been wonderful having you here this summer and especially thankful for their, their work in Romania. Um, that is tough soil there and you're doing a great work and we look forward to, to many years of partnership uh, together. So, wonderful. If you're a student of presidential politics, specifically 1980s presidential politics, you study Reagan and then into the election of 1988, you will have come across the name, or remember the name, Lee Atwater. That Atwater was a talented young man who began to work with Reagan and quickly became the chairman of the Republican National Committee and then went on to really be the architect of uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush's victory over Michael Dukakis in 1988. The reason why I bring up Lee Atwater today is he was very good at his craft, uh, that he was smart, he was shrewd, and uh, that smart approach, that shrewd approach, spilled over into a kind of aggressive campaigning tactic. That by his own uh, methods, he would, he would say, I was downright cruel. I, I think to really summarize it, to say all the, the, the negative things we really think about politics uh, are embodied, were embodied in this young man, Lee, Lee Atwater. He was just a, a very shrewd campaigner. But in his late 30s, somewhere around 1990, uh, even though his career kind of meteoric, he's diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor. And he only was given some months to live. And, and what Atwater did, what he said, is that he encountered, uh, he encountered God, the God of the Bible. He would say by means of kind of Roman Catholic tradition, but he had, we'll say, some kind of encounter with the God of the Bible. And what he, what he proceeded to do was he started issuing all kinds of apologies. Uh, the most famous one would have been the, the opinion piece he wrote for the New York Times where he apologized uh, to Michael Dukakis for his behavior and his tactics in 1988. And immediately as Atwater is issuing these apologies, you could see uh, the other media, really a national conversation, raising questions that, that all of us really need to, to ask at some point. Can a person really be forgiven? Can a cruel man, a selfish and aggressive man, 
really find a different way in life? Can, can a person change? Or maybe for our context, I would put it this way. Can a person really change? Some saw Atwater's change in stance, and they immediately dismissed it. Here he goes again, the politician right till the end, trying to win people over. So kind of a cynical view. But it raises the question for all of us. We think of our own past, the things we've done. We long for change maybe in our own behavior or behavior of someone close to us. And we ask that question, can we really change? You know, one of my favorite playwrights, uh, Eugene O'Neill, by the way, American, not British, okay? Uh, Dystopian playwright. His plays are dark. One for Pulitzers, though. And Eugene O'Neill, I think one of the big questions in his plays, one of the enduring questions he, he gives us is whether any person can really escape their own history. And by the titles of his books, um, his answer to that is no. The Iceman Cometh, Long Day's Journey into Night. No, we're just a product of our history. You can't really be forgiven. You carry around the things that you've done, and uh, you, you, know, you kind of wallow in that existentialism. Well, I introduce us that way because today we have this famous story of the man Zacchaeus. Uh, most beloved Bible story, perhaps. We always run a danger when we have such a well-known story because we tend to gloss over it. Many, I know, you're, you're already thinking of the tune, aren't you, that you learned in Sunday school. I said, well, should I play it on the kazoo? Would that, you know, help or hurt? You know, we'll get it all out there and then leave it, or would that just make it worse? We'd only be thinking about that. But a lot of us know Zacchaeus from a very young age. Again, you come in Sunday school, you learn about Zacchaeus. But I hope today, with fresh eyes, we can look at this man to see what Jesus did in his life, and then to see really the practical implications for a congregation like ours in Avon in 2023. So what about Zacchaeus? Here we, we, we are introduced in the narrative, verse uh, 1, chapter 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Actually, he's been on his way to Jerusalem for quite some time, since chapter 9. He's on this great mission of what he's accomplishing on the cross, and the last stop before he goes to Jerusalem is this ancient city at Jesus' time, an ancient city called Jericho, a prosperous city. And as he's passing through, there's the man Zacchaeus, verse 2, and we're told two very important things about this man that we can't miss. Firstly, that he's what is, uh, his profession is chief tax collector. We've been introduced time and time again to the figure of the tax collector in Luke's gospel, haven't we? So we've got to understand what, what this uh, kind of role entailed. You see, the tax collectors in Jesus' time were ethnically Jewish, uh, as Zacchaeus is, that, that he's a Hebrew, that he's, he, he's a Jewish man, but he's been hired out, perhaps conscripted because of his skill, by the Romans to collect taxes for the Romans. Now, we, we, have a, we generally don't like the IRS, do we? Uh, and and they're, you know, we're all on the same team, so to speak. But here what you have is, is that the tax collector is collecting taxes from other Jews to go into the coffers of the people who are oppressing you. That you're going along to the poor and dispossessed of Jericho saying, you know, come on, you gotta pay up or else I'm gonna send the troops in. And, and they're paying in order to support the Roman military who's got their boot on your throat, so to speak. So the tax collector is, is a traitor. Uh, the tax collector is doing the enemy's bidding, not only collecting your money, but doing so for the wrong kinds of people. Now add to that, how does a tax collector then make his own money? That if the Romans, say, you know, uh, demanded one drachma per family, well, the tax collector has got to charge more than a drachma to make his own living. And you can see this is very tempting. 
Uh, you actually keep uh, inflating that number until you take a nice bit of cream off the top. And that's what, that's what Zacchaeus was doing. But let's go even a step further. He's not just a tax collector, but we're told he's the chief tax collector. That he's got a whole guild of tax collectors under him. So no doubt, not only was Zacchaeus doing this, but then from each one of his tax collectors, he's taken a bit off that too. And consequently, Zacchaeus, again, verse 2, he was a rich man, very, very wealthy man. You say, well, you remember just a few weeks ago what Jesus said when he confronts a man who we just know is the rich young ruler, and Jesus says this to him, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus say that? Because our material well-being acts as a kind of blinker or blinder to our real spiritual need. God, I'm doing quite fine without you. Thank you very much. I'm a clever guy. I know how to make it in the world. I, I'm, I'm great, and if I get around to it, maybe I'll think about what you did in the person of Jesus, that kind of attitude. And friends, I, I say it this way, that our material well-being as a congregation, quite frankly, our intelligence as a congregation can be seen as a, a kind of curse in that lens that God has blessed us and endowed us with so many gifts that we can be very tempted. Our chief uh, hazard, I think, is to say, you know, God, I don't really need you. I'll do it myself. And so Zacchaeus is particularly at risk. A chief tax collector, a rich man, and I think we're to read this something like he, he's, a, he's a most unlikely convert. You know, you scale the... the, 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 the the society, you, scale, you look around Jericho and you say, who's the, the guy that like, is least likely to follow the Galilean carpenter? Well, Zacchaeus is pretty high up on the list. A trader, a wealthy man, plundering people, what chance does he have? And so within that context, we must ask a few questions that I, that I pray are, again, important for a congregation like ours. Firstly, we must raise this question. This Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the rich man, verse 3, then we, the next detail we get, verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Why would a man like this seek to see who Jesus was? I think that if you just, you know, many commentators have just left it at curiosity. I, I think a lot of people, may, maybe there have been over the centuries, some who are just curious about Jesus. You know, I just kind of like to know more. It's a matter of indifference, but, you know, I'll just kind of check it out. Maybe Zacchaeus was just curious. The reason why I'm going to press, and this is where we always want to stay with exactly what the Bible says, but here, if you would, just press a bit forward, you know, on, on this moment, what made this kind of man want to see Jesus. The reason why I think it must be something beyond curiosity is because he does a terribly embarrassing thing. He, he climbs up a tree. Now think about that. Now I've had a good fun this week of thinking about different people in my life in their fancy suits climbing up trees. You know, so it's not something really a grown man does. You know, my son's playing. I don't climb up in the trees, you know, in my suit. But you know, picture Zacchaeus there. A guy comes down the road, climbs up in the tree. It seems like there's something a bit more than curiosity driving this man to see Jesus. And may I raise this question to you. Could it be? Could it be that this rich and powerful man who seemingly had things all together was actually very empty? That actually he wasn't a happy man at all? 
that even though to look at him, say, well, there's a guy who's got everything, seems to be doing just fine, could it be that something was deeply off with Zacchaeus? Could it be that Zacchaeus was carrying around a lot of guilt? Could, could it have been that as this man lays his head on the pillow every night, as we all must do, that every night that he would replay in his mind perhaps the small child, the small Jewish child in Jericho, and think about his father whom he had plundered earlier that day. Perhaps Zacchaeus, as he was getting up and eating his lavish breakfast, knew in the back of his mind that this had come at the expense of the poor single woman whom he had taken great advantage of to get his meal. That could it be that Zacchaeus, far from being all well, was actually a very troubled soul? I think beyond this, you could say, don't know exactly how long he was in this game, but I suppose if you become a chief tax collector, you've been doing this for many years, perhaps it's a feeling for Zacchaeus, I'm just in way too deep. And not only the people that I did this to today, but many years of taking advantage of these people. I'm in too deep. He's guilty. But while he's an empty man, he's heard rumors. He's heard rumors. And I, you don't have to turn back here. You know, we've been in Luke since 2019. You know, I said even Lloyd-Jones would be happy at the pace I'm going here. Uh, but we're going to finish next year, I promise. So back to... Luke chapter 3, don't turn there, just listen. Luke chapter 3 and verse 12, pretty early in the gospel. Tax collectors came to Jesus to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, tax collectors come to Jesus. Chapter 5 and verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. We know him as Matthew the apostle, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with Jesus. And the Pharisees and their scribes, the religious people, said to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. How about chapter 7 and verse 34? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Or perhaps back in Luke 18, some would say, well, this Jesus, you know, he told the most interesting story. He compared a religious professional, a Pharisee, and the tax collector but instead of making the Pharisee the good guy and the tax collector the bad guy, actually the tax collector was the hero in the story. So put those two things together. An empty man, a guilty man, a troubled man in too deep. But he hears rumors. There is this Jesus, and for whatever reason, he's compassionate on people like me. Far from removing himself from people like me, all that I've heard is actually he welcomes sinners like me. Maybe I'd just like to get a glimpse of him. And I think that's what drives Zacchaeus up the tree to hear of this Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe that's you today. Say so you feel guilty, troubled, burdened, in too deep. You don't really know why you're at church, maybe just curiosity, but maybe you've heard there's a Jesus who can change your life. 
And you're learning about him today from Luke's gospel. So what does Zacchaeus do? He does something, again, very embarrassing, I would think. Instead of going down, I suppose, through the crowd, you know, everybody knew who he was. He's a shorter man. They would have, you know, perhaps taken some shots at him, pushed him over, who knows. But he goes up a tree. And I will say, say, what is, remind, you know, when we say climbing a tree, there's something very childlike about that. As I mentioned a moment ago, children climb trees, and that's just what Jesus said, come to me as a child. Zacchaeus climbs a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. Now, I didn't really know where to fit this in the sermon, so bear with me. The next few minutes are what I'd call a sidebar, okay? Undoubtedly, some are here today, and you, you, you are in the mindset in, in our soundbite culture, and you have listened to clippets of Bart Ehrman or somebody on YouTube, and you, you're in the camp that, you know, the whole Bible, the Gospels are just made up by, by religiously interested people that want to take advantage of other, you, you know, others, and it was made up in Rome by Constantine and the popes, or, you know, whatever that kind of view is. I want us to look once again at verse 4. There's a little detail here that this is reading the Bible closely. Zacchaeus climbs what kind of tree? He climbs, we're told, a sycamore tree. It's very specific species. Now, this is an era before encyclopedias, before Google. If the Bible, say, written from outside of Israel by politically interested people in the imperial capital of Rome, would you include a detail like that? So I brought along Peter Williams. If, you, again, you're skeptical, you say, oh, you know, what is this? I recommend this short little read, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. It's very good, and I'll read a paragraph. Another striking piece of knowledge appears where Luke records that tax collector Zacchaeus climbed up a sycamore tree in Jericho, Luke 19.4. The relevant species, Ficus sycamorus, did not grow in northern Mediterranean countries like Italy, Greece, and Turkey, and in fact lacks natural pollinators in those countries. But this tree was characteristic of Jericho, according to the second century rabbi, Rabbi Shaul. How did the author know there were sycamores in Jericho? The simple explanation is that he had either been there or had spoken to someone who had. I raise this to you. I know you're thoughtful people and you're thinking about these things. But if you've made the great danger of dismissing the Bible as some made-up fairy tale, unhinged from reality, you do yourself a great service by reading the Bible closely and thinking about it. If you're making up a religious text to try to fool people, and you're writing the account of Zacchaeus out of the ether, and you want to put a kind of tree that the man climbed up into, it's an awfully risky proposition to name a sycamore unless Jericho is full of sycamores. And the Bible just doesn't do this in Luke 19, but again and again and again with geography and people because it involves real eyewitness testimony, which is exactly what Luke says. So uh, there you have it. Uh, take it or leave it. Uh, if you're like, what is he going on about? Uh, Peter Williams is well worth the read, though. So why was Zacchaeus interested in Jesus? I think an empty and troubled man who heard rumors of a great Savior who is merciful to, save, to, to sinners, and he climbs up the tree to see Jesus. And then just one practical application for us. Look at the opportunity we have in the marketplace even this week. All of us, when we go to our various responsibilities, we're going to see people that are very put together, that have a lot of nice things, but are also carrying around their own past, as we all have, the own thing, their own things that they've even done this past weekend, and they're wondering, is there anyone who can change me? Is there anyone who can forgive me? 
And we know as Christ followers, well, yes, there is. There is what God has done in Jesus. So don't be embarrassed of him. Be able to see what is undoubtedly there, which is a lot of, of hurting folks who I think might be more intrigued in the personage of Jesus and what he offers us. So Zacchaeus, interested in Jesus. Now, second point, let's put it this way. Who's doing the seeking? That's question two. So why was Zacchaeus interested in Jesus? Second question is, who is really seeking who? Now, you read this, you say, well, it says right there, Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. Fair enough. But Jesus is really the pursuer, isn't he? How many times the last few chapters that Jesus has had time, think of who he's had time for just in the last recent days of his ministry. He's had time for lepers, the untouchables. He's had time for children. He's had time for those with questions. He's had time for beggars. He's had time for sinners, even the chief tax collectors. Jesus has had time for them. And so if you're here today and you're of the ilk to say, you know, the things that I've done, the way that I've treated my, my family, the, the, the way that I've taken advantage of people. Jesus could never do, you know, save a person. I, I have failed you. I, I really, I have failed you as a pastor if, it, if it's not ringing in this room that Christ Jesus has come to save sinners and no one is too far gone to repent and turn to him and receive him. That all of us who are Christians have seen that even in ourselves. That you can receive Jesus and be changed. And what do you say? What do the, the crowds, I think verse 7, right? That when, as they see Jesus mingling with this man, they say, you know, look at this guy. Here we go again. He's mingling with sinners. Do you see what, what they assume? That the crowds think a, a good person, like Jesus, a decent man, if you're, a, if you're a good person, what you do is you move far away from the bad people. That's what they think. Okay, there's a good guy and a bad guy like Zacchaeus. Good people run the other way. That's a sign of being a good man. You, you, you run. Over and over again, that assumption, as I've read even earlier, the assumption of Jesus moving away from the wrong kinds of people, every time, what does Jesus do? He moves in. He moves towards the sinner. And what he does, friends, I think, is actually quite moving if you put yourself there. Little guy up the tree, nobody likes him. Zacchaeus comes trying to see Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He turns and he looks. And I say, undoubtedly, because of this exchange, that he would have locked eyes with Zacchaeus. Don't you love in the Gospels all the time when Jesus locks eyes with people? You know, say, wonder what that's going to be when we get to glory. If you're a Christian and Jesus, the Lord himself, locks eyes with you. You know, the eyes are tremendously important. The times in which we live where we're at each other's throats. I remember years ago, I was doing this exercise at some kind of you know, weekend retreat, and you're paired up with another man, and you sit in two chairs like this, and you're told effectively just to, to look into the other man's eyes and to think about the pain they've experienced in their life, to think about the disappointments in their life, to think about all the unfulfilled dreams in their life, all the times they've been wounded and broken. And the point of the exercise is you really do kind of end that point thinking, well, there's a person just like me. Uh, to see other people, to really lock eyes with them, to see their vulnerabilities, to, to really know them, I might say. And so this humanizes Zacchaeus. Jesus looks at him. And of course, secondly, what does he do? He calls him by name. How did Jesus know his name? Jesus knows our name. And he says, Zacchaeus. 
I think if I could summarize what Jesus does here by seeing Zacchaeus and calling his name beyond humanizing him, is it's showing us this important, (laughs) deep longing of every human heart to be known and loved. That we all long, I believe, to be known and loved. You see, some of us, you say, well, they know me, but if they really know me, they won't love me because I'm not a good person. So, uh, you know, I, I can be known, but I can't be loved. Others will say, well, well I, can, I can be loved, but I've got to really hide part of me uh, so I won't be fully known. That's how we say, well, I want to be known and loved, but in order to, I, I've got to compromise somewhere. Say, I think, I think what Jesus does for Zacchaeus here is basically saying, look, I know you and I love you. And may the church, as a response to what Christ has done for us, be a place where we're really known and loved. I have nothing special to bring this church. I am a self-interested person. I fail often. I have nothing to hide. But may somehow, by what Christ has done in our lives, may we really not be afraid of really knowing each other, seeing each other in our vulnerability and weakness, and loving each other in spite of it, because that's exactly what Jesus does for this man. He looks at him, calls him by name, humanizes him, knows him, and loves him. And Zacchaeus, friends, what does he do? Well, he responds to the authority of Jesus. What does he say? Jesus, I'm coming to your house today. In other words, Zacchaeus, I'm, I want to be your friend. That, that's what that means. I, I want to be your friend. I, I, again, I want to get to know you. And Zacchaeus, we're told, the Lord says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. Verse 5, I'm coming to your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. Immediately, Zacchaeus responds. You see, when the authority of Christ and who he is, the call of God in Jesus is extended to a man or a woman. You don't say, well, you know, uh, this isn't that important. Say, no, look, look at what Jesus has done. And we hurry to follow him. Much, much to my parents' credit, I remember years ago, they'll, they'll remember this, I went to a little evening kind of retreat with one of the liberal churches in town, of which there were many in my hometown. And, you know, it was like, you know, 13 and 14-year-old boys going to the, you know, having a sports night, and there was going to be a little talk. And the pastor, I still remember, it was there many years. And he basically said, you know, boys, keep in mind our age. You're going to hear a lot of ideas in life, and, you know, Jesus is one of those ideas, and you've got to go out and kind of test them, and there's no real hurry, and, you know, kind of, do, you know, ease your way and do what you, do, do what you will with this. And, and I went back and told my parents what the pastor had said, and, and to their credit, they said, no. This is the, the most urgent thing. Whatever you have going on this week, which I don't want to demean, we have important jobs, very important jobs with real people that we want to serve well, but, but is there anything more urgent? Again, taking the Bible at its own terms, is there anything more urgent than seeing who Jesus is and receiving him? And Zacchaeus teaches us that lesson. He hurries down and receives Jesus, and as a consequence, wins the day. Why was Zacchaeus interested in Jesus? He was a hurting man who heard about a gracious Savior who reaches out to sinners. Who was seeking who? Well, actually, Jesus was seeking him. He came to seek and save the lost, and he seeks everyone who hears this word. Lastly, was Zacchaeus changed? 
Zacchaeus is profoundly changed. If you think of comparing him to the rich young ruler of just a chapter ago, the rich young ruler goes away sad. He encounters Jesus, hears the message. His heart is not quickened. He is not effectually called, and he leaves. He does not follow Jesus. He goes the opposite direction. Get me out of here. Get me away from these Looney Tune Christ followers. And he leaves, and he goes away sad because he loves his stuff. But Zacchaeus, verse 6, leaves with joy. Why does Zacchaeus leave with joy even though this is going to cost him? As we see, it really does cost him materially because Zacchaeus knows that, that the joy of being in Christ far outweighs the cost. Think of it. He's, he's relieved from his idol of money. I'm no longer a tax collector. I'm no, no longer defined by plundering these people. There's a way home that my guilt can be alleviated. And Zacchaeus at this moment is, is freed. And that's why he's joyful. And every, every Christ follower ought to be joyful to say, I was once under this great burden of idolatry and performance, and then the Lord quickened my heart when I heard about Jesus, and I sprung to life, and I've received him with joy. And you've got to love the verbs of verse 8, right? Zacchaeus stood, told the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Just think of those two verbs. I give... I restore. I give. I restore. Wait a second here. This Zacchaeus, what did he spend his life doing? I take. I plunder. I take. I destroy. I take. I humiliate. I take. I take. I t what does he say now? I give. I restore. And I ask you further to say why these amounts when he says, I'm going to give my, half my goods to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, again, very specifically fourfold, you say this is deliberate because it goes beyond what the Hebrew Bible tells in its laws. So if you read, I've got the references there, but uh, if you defrauded anyone and, you know, you were caught, basically, you, you repaid them double, and, uh, or in other parts, you're to restore them back plus another 20th. So why does Zacchaeus go, go beyond what the law has has even said, it's because it wasn't Jesus said, well, you know, now, now Zacchaeus, you're, you're with me here, and he lays out the rules. It, to me, it seems quite evident what's happened is that Zacchaeus has come to understand grace. He's come to understand grace and forgiveness. That he is compelled to do the right thing because he has encountered Jesus. And friends, you, you see the order. This is so important for us. What's the order of Zacchaeus' change? It's encounter with Jesus, then obedience. All the other world religions would say something like this. Zacchaeus, you're a rotten guy. You're a mean guy. You've done a lot of bad things. And you're going to obey this law, and you're going to repay every penny, and you better be following this law perfectly. And if you do that and I don't catch you, maybe I'm going to you know, kind of let you in. Not the gospel. Zacchaeus, come to me. Follow me. I extend grace. You can be forgiven here. And when Zacchaeus tastes this, he obeys and changes. That his grace flows out of what Jesus has done for him. Encounter with Jesus, change in obedience in that order. Some final practical points for us then on the change of Zacchaeus from I take to I give. I plunder to I restore. Having encountered the living God, he's become a joyful, just, and generous man. Now, some will say, and this is important, as we've seen in all those instances, Jesus also doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you've got to stop being a tax collector. 
There, there's no indication here, actually, that, that Zacchaeus had to change jobs. Say, what was the difference? That he was now going to be a joyful, just, and generous tax collector. That the call of God on your life isn't to say, okay, you know, you, you become a monk, you know, and just sit there and, and, and do whatever you got. No, it's now in my job, I will be joyful and just and generous because I see afresh what Jesus has done for me. And so that too, Christian, again, I think a practical thing for us, two practical points if you're a follower of Jesus today is firstly to see, to not make the mistake of this is good for really bad guys like Zacchaeus. I think that's always our temptation. We always want to compare ourselves to say, well, you know, Zacchaeus is bad. I'm not that bad. But to say, you know what? I am that man. I am that self-interested man who takes advantage of others. And Jesus really did die for a sinner like me. He came and died on that cross. He extended grace to me. And out of that then, to delight. And how much more as Jesus came to seek and save the lost, verse 10, should our concern be to seek and save the lost? People all the time say, well, you know, your church is really growing. Say, yeah, but there's 25,000 people in Avon alone. And on a big Sunday here, we might have 900 people. So am I supposed to feel some kind of satisfaction or rest in that? That we, as Christ followers, should be with great urgency seeking people to introduce them to Jesus who is seeking, if you will, through us so that he might save them. So Christian, may we too be in the business of introducing people to Jesus. If you're non-Christian today, I just raise this question to you. Or maybe you were raised in the church and you've drifted and you're like, you know, would you use the word lost? The word the Bible uses here. You know, I'm just lost. I heard Eric Metaxas, you know, the guy who wrote the biography of Bonhoeffer this week. He said, I was 24 and I, I was lost. I, I just didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't find my way out. It was crazy. Hear the call of God through Jesus to you today that you can receive Jesus, that you can be forgiven, that you can be changed, that you can serve him and be his ambassador. And the best time to follow him is right now. So, there you have it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moving account of this man who, uh, having lived presumably a fair number of years in this life away from you, was just very empty and troubled and guilty. And Lord, that you quickened his heart on this occasion, that you know us, that you see us, that you know us by name, and you call us the call of God and Jesus, come follow me. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we thank you for giving us that gift. And may we remember the great joy we ought to have, that we would be a joyful, just, and generous congregation. That this is not, uh, you know, we just decided these were the right ethics, but to say that's exactly what we've been showing. Uh, generosity and justice and great joy, joy for the freedom that we have in Christ. And Lord, I pray for others today that aren't right with you, might even say, you know, I am just lost. Nobody would know it, but I am lost. That there's a different way, that, that there's a way home. <laughs> there's a way to be reconciled. And that's to receive Jesus and walk with him and declare his message boldly in our own families and in our workplaces and so forth. So Lord, help us to think about this passage this week, its implications for the marketplace, for our church. But again, may we be marked by generosity justice, joyfulness. Amen.